Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. Few directors in the history of the medium had as interesting a career as John G. Avildsen. There's no doubt that for a time, he had his finger on the pulse of moviegoers like no one else. Rocky and the Karate Kid are testaments to that. But this is also the man who gave us the countercultural provocations of 1970s Joe and the perplexing John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd vehicle Neighbors. Derek Wayne Johnson was a huge fan of the director from an early age, and once he set his sights on a film directing career of his own, he made Avildsen's acquaintance and even convinced him to be the subject of his documentary, John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs, a star-studded exploration of Mr. Avildsen's fascinating career. The film is now available on all streaming services, and it actually led to another opportunity for Mr. Johnson, his follow-up documentary, 40 Years of Rocky, The Birth of a Classic, will become available on digital platforms starting on June 9th, 2020. Please note that this interview was conducted in 2019 for our new podcast series, Movie Geek Yearbook. Visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. I was always fascinated by John because Rocky and the Karate Kid are two of my favorite films of all time. Actually, they both are tied for first for my favorite films of all time. And growing up, I would see this interesting name on screen directed by John G. Avildsen. And I was fascinated. Like, who is this person? You know, we know Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, but who's this guy? I just kind of developed uh, an appreciation for his films and kind of started researching on who he is. And, and, and lo and behold, I reached out to him and he responded and we just kind of, I let him know he was kind of my filmmaking hero and we started a friendship and we went from there. And did you see these movies when you were a kid? Absolutely. I saw, uh, you know, I grew up on the Rocky films and the Karate Kid films. As a matter of fact, the first movie I remember seeing in a theater, I was three years old, and I remember seeing the Karate Kid Part Two, and I was just blown mm. away by what I was seeing. And uh, you know, so these his films were a part of my life before I realized who he was. And as I grew older, and you know, became a filmmaker, went to film school, etc is when I really started studying John himself. In what way were you inspired by his work? And do you feel like his work has in any way shaped your personal sensibilities as a filmmaker yourself? Well, yeah, I was, I was inspired by the message that, that, you know, his movies say and, and, and his affinity for the underdog. I mean, he didn't, John didn't choose underdog scripts. They almost kind of chose him. He just happened to be the best at it, I believe. And that's what spoke to him. Well, those movies spoke to me as a kid and still do. And as a filmmaker, I think for me, John's films, although Rocky and Karate Kid are the, the, are his biggest achievements and most known, he also has some misses. He has as many misses as he has hits. Well, you know, the misses are one thing, but the hits, they all have, you know, they're all told very well. And I noticed with John that he was very tight, um, very simple, and he knew what he wanted. And he was meticulous in that sense. And I find myself as a filmmaker really appreciating certain aspects of his films. Uh, his cinematography was always on point when he would work with James Craig, the great, late great cinematographer. And the way he would stage shots and scenes, the way he would set them up. For example, he and I would always talk about, if you look in the film Rocky, in Miles Jurgen's office, you see a book in the foreground called The Ring. Well, when we come back to Miles Jurgen's office later on, that is the book that they're looking through. It's the Facebook of fighters where they come across the Italian stallion. So John would make choices like that. And I find myself making choices like that in my films. So he had a huge influence on me, 
not just the storytelling, but the way he he staged his uh, his films. And you could always tell that his depiction of humanity was genuine, and his films I feel work most because the humanity is present. And and after Rocky and Karate Kid, you had any number of movies that wanted to capture that same spirit, but they couldn't because they, they didn't have that genuine sense of humanity present in them. Absolutely. John was, I mean, he was the best at that, I believe. And, you know, you talk about humanity and this human spirit, something about John, this quiet, mild mannered man, um, he just was able to capture that in, in the story and the performances, but he also understood that it starts with the script. So um, he was a big believer in, you know, if you don't have a good story, if you don't have it on the paper, you don't, you don't have anything. So yeah. I think that, like I was saying, I don't think he chose to just to set out to do underdog films. I think that they kind of chose him. He was the right man for the job. Yeah. Uh, was he hard, was it difficult to convince him to to participate in a documentary portrait of his life and career? It wasn't difficult at all to convince him to for for us to do this documentary on him, but there is a funny story about that i When I reached out to him, I originally uh just wanted to connect with one of my heroes and we started up a rapport and I offered him a script to direct that I've written and he messages me and he says, look, I get a lot of scripts. Do me a favor, mail me the script and a check for a thousand dollars. If I like the movie or excuse me, if I like the script, I'll do it. If I don't for a thousand dollars, I promise you that I will script doctor every page and make it better for you. Is that, is that a deal? I said, great. So I mailed him the script, mailed him a check for $1,000. Two weeks later, I get a phone call. Hey, Derek, this is John Avelson. Get a pen and paper ready. Your script sucks. And we, we <laughs> talked about it for two and a half hours on the phone. And I'm like, wow. And he kept his word. We went over every page. He even emailed me, or excuse me, he mailed me back his handwritten notes on my script. And he made it better. So that's script number one. About six months later, I, I, I wasn't living in L.A. at the time. I do now. But at the time, I was living in the South. Um, I'm originally from Texas. And I flew in to L.A. to meet with him. And we had a wonderful meeting uh, for about three hours at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And at the end of the meeting, I felt it went really well. And so I offered him another script, which, was, which I had with me. He's like, sure, I'll read it. I won't charge you $1,000 this time, but I'll read it. I was like, oh, great, okay. So 10 minutes after he read 10 minutes of it, and he turned me down again. Now, I'm <laughs> out $1,000 on the first script. I'm out a plane ticket on the second script. I fly back home, and I'm like, what am I going to do? I mean, I struck out with my hero twice. So then I got the idea. See, I was a big fan of the documentary I knew it was you rediscovering John Cazal. Oh, yeah. And I was also a big fan of His Way, the Jerry Weintraub doc. So mm -hmm. I get off the plane. I get excited. I called John Avildsen and said, John, I have an idea. If I can't make a movie with you, what if I make a movie about you? And he said, you want to work with me, kid? That's it. You're in. And then I had a follow through. Wow. Wow. What a moments that you just have to pinch, your, pinch yourself. I mean, it, just just like uh, you, I'm sure growing up, I I could not possibly imagine being able to sit down with my cinematic heroes. Uh, I mean, in what world was that possible? <laughs> so, right. So that's absolutely. A, that's, yeah, that's a great story. But when you cover the work of such a prolific filmmaker who's worked with so many great talents. Uh, I mean, the intimidation doesn't stop with actually meeting John Avildsen. 
you're sitting across from people like Martin Scorsese and Sylvester Stallone. And uh, uh, what, what was the most uh, intimidating uh, interview you could conducted with his colleagues and, and what was the most informative? I have to say that uh, for the record, none of them were intimidating. The reason being is because every single person I interviewed was such a delight. For example, mm. uh, I remember when we interviewed Sylvester Stallone. I still consider it the best day I've ever had on a set, ever. Everything was so was going so well, so smooth. And everyone was delighted to talk about John and wondering why no one had done this before. So no one was intimidating except John. You see, John became a friend of mine. He became a mentor. He was my own Mr. Miyagi in a way and my own Mickey in a way. And we loved each other. And, and we would argue sometimes. And it, it was a good five-year-long relationship between he and I. So when I interviewed him, that's when it got intimidating. Because you're talking about a man who's a perfectionist. You're talking about a man who knows exactly how he wants something. And including a documentary about himself. So, you know, I mean, everyone was such a delight. And John was a delight. There was also something about him that he would test me constantly to push me to be better. And uh, it was just a wonderful experience. For example, in post, he would give, he probably gave me a thousand notes over a period mm. of time. I'm not kidding. It, it, we would watch uh, the rough cut at his house and he would pause it every few seconds with an idea or a note. And now that could be really frustrating for a filmmaker, especially I'm a very hands-on guy. I, I write, produce, direct, edit. I know what I'm doing and I know what I want. Well, when you're working with John Hamilton, get prepared because he also knows what he wants. And if he's giving you notes on editing beats and production things, those kinds of notes, that also speaks to his strength of character because – you know, this is a movie about him where all of his colleagues throughout his life are talking about him. And I would think if you have an ego about yourself that, uh, that your notes can kind of meddle in the wrong way. But he, he, was, he was purely about your work when he gave you notes, right? Absolutely. He, he would tell me, this is your film. Remember mm -hmm. that. And where he we did butt heads a lot were on little things. For example, the font choice and how large the font should be. Well, when you see the movie, I hate the fonts. They're too large. He wanted them bigger. <laughs> and I don't like them. And we would argue about the camera. I tried to sell him on, you know, John, for your interview, we were using like a rinky-dink camera. And, and he, but when we, you know, did like Sylvester Stallone, we had – an A-team come in, you know, shoot at 5K on the red, et cetera. We couldn't afford that for the whole movie. And I'm like, we need to bring in an A-team for your interview. You're the star. He's like, no, 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 it's fine. And we would argue about that stuff. And, of course, it was funny. <laughs> the last time I ever saw him was the world premiere. He goes, yeah, you were right about that camera. I, I should have listened to you. And I'm like, John, it's too late now. So he was funny in that sense. He, we would argue about that kind of thing. But as far as, like, the story and whatnot, he usually was right. Um, for example, he felt that we needed to show more about his father because, after all, if John is the what I call him the king of the underdogs, where did that come from? And he, he was very influenced by his father. So we added more of that in. Um, but then there yeah. were places where he actually – the first time I showed him the rough cut, it was 90 minutes. He laughed. He cried. He was moved. He turned to me when it was over. And after all the accolades, he said, and by the way, you need to cut about 30 minutes out. I go, what? And I thought to myself, <laughs> what person would say cut 30 minutes out of my own movie, a movie about me? But he knew that 90 minutes was too long. He knew as a filmmaker the audience was going to get bored. So 
we did. We cut a, we, we actually ended the film, I think it's about 78 minutes. But that's the genius of John Avildsen. No ego in that sense. Just tell a good yeah. story. Absolutely. I'm so glad he, and I, and I knew you are too, I'm so glad he was able to see it before he passed away, that he was able to enjoy his moment with the film. Absolutely. He he was so involved in the film, it took us three years from start to distribution. But the the sad part is, is he didn't get to see it, the worldwide release that that he, he died. It was released August 1st, 2017. He died in June of 2017. So but you're right. He got to go to the world premiere. He, he saw it a 100 times. And, um, mm. and for that, I'm very thankful. Now, this has led to some additional opportunities for you, right? You're, you've done uh, a, a documentary on the, the 40th and uh, the Rocky franchise as a whole recently. So it actually yeah. focuses on just the making of the original Rocky and not the saga. And okay. that stemmed from King of the Underdogs. And uh, Sly really loved King of the Underdogs. And he uh, offered me to, to do 40 Years of Rocky. Mm. Um, well, that's exciting. And you also did a documentary on, on Frank Stallone, didn't you? Absolutely. We, did, uh, we, we just finished that one up. It's called Stallone Frank, that is. And that, too, kind of stemmed from King of the Underdogs. We, uh, we weren't sure what our next project was going to be, and one of our producers came up with the idea to do one on Frank, and I was like, absolutely, another underdog. And from there, um, we did Stallone Frank, that is, and 40 Years of Rocky's Birds of Classic uh, at the same time. And they're both going to come out around the same time, which is really cool. Well, that's amazing. Um, Okay. Uh, In this series, uh, we're doing – we're starting in the year 1970, and we're doing a segment on every single movie that had a significant release in the U.S. week by week. So you get a true history of the movies in that decade and beyond. Um, so do you mind if I go through a few of Mr. Avildsen's titles with you and you can share your thoughts on them and whatever you learned about them from John and his collaborators? I would be honored to. Let's do it. Uh, I guess, first of all, I'd like to know, is there a John G. Avildsen movie that you feel is underappreciated, under the radar, that needs to be discovered or rediscovered? Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, the film snobs, which, you know, there's plenty of us out there, uh, kind of already know about them. But I guess the uh, the general public, per se, I think um, really needs to see a film called Joe, which came out in 1970 yeah. and uh, starring Peter Boyle. I think that not a lot of people know that Avildsen made that film, if they even know about it at all. And, you know, I really love Save the Tiger uh, with Jack Lemmon. And, you know, of course, Jack Lemmon won his only Best Actor Oscar, uh, directed by John Avildsen on Save the Tiger. I think it's a fantastic film. Critics actually kind of, um, you know, like Roger Ebert, Leonard Maltin, et cetera, they they weren't too big on it. Um, They had some issues with the script and whatnot. But it was nominated for Oscars. It won and Oscar, I think it's a fantastic film, and I, I love, love, love watching that movie. Um, gosh, I'm thinking of his. Uh, oh, okay, Neighbors, 1981, with uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. I think is a really cool and weird comedy. I mean, it's one of those movies that I grew up watching late at night. I could never watch Neighbors during the daytime. It, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, like watching a horror film in the daytime? It's, like, it's weird. Neighbors is like, you watch it at like 3 a.m. You know? It's it's so underrated. Um, but, you know, and it's one, a lot and of it's people one of those don't know movies about where it's, it's one of those movies where people, I don't quite think they were expecting that because they saw Aykroyd at Belushi and I think it took them aback. Uh, and I think people are just now kind of coming around to neighbors. I agree. I think it was too weird. And of course, you know, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd flopped 
kind of roles. Uh, uh, Belushi played the straight man. Ackroyd played the, the, the crazy guy. And I, I don't think audiences were ready for that. And by the way, I do believe that was Abelson's idea to do that. Oh, you know what? I have one for you. The film Happy New Year, 1987, directed by John, produced by Jerry Weintraub, their fourth film they did together. And actually their third film they did together, but they did four altogether. And it, it stars Peter Falk and Charles Durning. It is a fantastic movie. I love this movie. Um, I don't know why it didn't get as much... Um, I don't know. People don't know about it, but critics loved it. It's just a simple, sweet kind of caper comedy, and I could watch it endless amounts of times. Love that movie. Have mm. you seen it? I haven't, you know, and, and, and I'm just looking at it now, and I'm wondering, why haven't I seen this movie? Because <laughs> it, it's right up my alley. Wow. And, and I have a theory on why. I feel like and this is not a criticism or negative criticism. It's kind of a quote unquote, an old person's movie. What I mean by that, it's very classic. It's classically made. Like you take dirty rotten scoundrels that came out in the same year. Everyone's seen that. Everyone loves it. This is kind of like an alternative to that. This is like the, 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 the B side of that coin, you know? Mm. And um, I just, I feel like it's, it's very traditional and old school and sweet. And I think that might be why a lot of people don't know about it. Well, I will definitely check that one out because that, that, that sounds really appealing to me. And, and uh, I'm filling in a lot of gaps that I have when I, as I'm doing this series. So I, I appreciate the recommendations very much. Uh, if we can talk more in more detail about a couple of these titles, starting with Joe, because Joe is one of the first movies that we'll be exploring in the series. And I think it's surprising for people that aren't already aware that John directed this one because it feels a lot more subversive than some some of his other work. Um, and I, I'm I'm wondering what what you admire personally about that movie. First of all, well, with Joe, one thing I admire about it is it's so ballsy. I mean, it's 1970. Here's a story about a guy who hates hippies, who hates everything that the 60s brought about. Um, you know, he's a quote-unquote hard hat. He's a guy that, uh, you know, that works at a, at, a, at a factory. And he's not a lovable guy, but I think that's kind of what makes him lovable. He's certainly the anti-hero. And it doesn't feel like a John Avildsen movie at all. And it's also John's first hit. It was the highest grossing independent film of 1970. So one thing I love about it is it's just, it's audacious. And it shows another side of John Avildsen that you didn't see in later years, this raw side about him. And of course, Peter Boyle is absolutely fascinating. His performance is up there with Marlon Brando. Actually, um, uh, Martin Scorsese cites Pauline Kael in my documentary about how he was like a young Brando. And uh, that's, I think that's the highest compliment one can get. He's not imitating Brando. He just has that pizzazz. And uh, it's just a fascinating piece of work. It, in some places, Joe, I feel, is a little too much. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's a film that it couldn't, uh, it just, it could not be made today. However, it reflects so much of the times then and now. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like you to meet Joe. This is what the American press say. The movie Joe must surely rank in impact with Bonnie and Clyde. Time magazine. Money don't mean nothing to them. Motorcycles, marijuana. You got love, you don't need this stuff. Uh, how do they fall in love? A hippie pimp. Lone Ranger. Cowboys and Indians. Hop along Cassidy. Not really fags, but close. I'll drink to that. It's growing and grooving. Joe, do me a favor. Give us all a break. When you look at it and you keep in mind that this was made in 1970, you can easily see the parallels between something like Joe and what was to come, like things like 
Archie Bunker and uh, even Taxi Driver. I mean, it feels it kind of swims in the same waters in a way. Absolutely. And and it's funny what that movie led up to. And also, I always like to point this out about Joe. Now, it was an independent movie. It wasn't a studio picture. But in 1969, you have Easy Rider. 1971, you have The French Connection. 1972, you have The Godfather. And so on and so on. 1970, for me, Joe stands out. And it's mm-hmm. an underdog film. Uh, it, you know, you may not look at it that way, but it kind of really is. And it's interesting how um, John was kind of doing this stuff. He was right in the mix of that, of that 70s renaissance. And um, I think Joe's an outstanding underrated picture. And in terms of the lead character, obviously he he's a character filled with bitterness about the changing times and how he doesn't fit into them. But, um, you know, I think people were, because it's such, like you said, an audacious character and very verbose. And I think he was an, kind of an infectious character for a lot of people. I know I even owned the album of Joe Speaks, which is just of his, <laughs> just of his right. the ramblings. Was, was John troubled by the way the public seemed to take that lead character to interpret that character? I don't know if John was troubled because um, we never really talked about that, but that is a good question. Something that maybe I, I should ask his family and see what they, what they think. But I know that it was supposed to be a parody. You know, I, Joe, in other words, Joe is not supposed to be a hero of the times he's uh because john john himself was a very liberal man and i believe peter boyle was as well so it's a it's kind of a farce it's a it's a parody on that type of hard hat could people have taken it um as like you know it's promoting that type of behavior i don't know uh go to you mentioned save the tiger and in save the tiger uh john is blessed with the ultimate everyman actor in Jack Lemmon. Um, and, and I'm wondering, could you tell, tell me a little bit more about how that relationship worked, the, the, the chemistry uh, between Avildsen and, and, and Lemmon? Jack Lemmon and John Avildsen adored each other. Uh, they were two total opposites. John's very quiet and reserved and, and Jack Lemmon obviously could, you know, he could talk all day long. And they really, really appreciated, appreciated each other. As a matter of fact, how John got that gig was one day he gets a phone call, and it's Jack Lemmon on the other line. And he says, I saw Joe. I loved it. And I have this script, and I, I'd like for you to direct it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they, the studio flew John out to L.A. because he was living in New York, and, and, and he got the gig. And, you know, there's also the story of, uh, and this is all in my documentary, of course, but uh, John tells Jack Lemmon, he says, look, I'll do this, but I don't want to see you in it. And what he meant mm-hmm. by that was, is I don't want to see Jack Lemmon. I want to see Harry Stoner, the character. And And Jack really appreciated that. He he goes okay. This this unknown director standing up to me, and he's telling me, okay, he is the guy for the job. And that was what was so great about their relationship. Is John really? Now you do see it in some scenes. You can see Jack Lemmon being Jack Lemmon. What we what we saw in the fifties and sixties, but for the most part, he's not. And that was John Avildsen. That was John Avildsen that came in and said, we're going to do something different here. And he ended up winning the Oscar. Um, you'll also see in, in my documentary, there's a clip of Jack Lemmon. And a lot of people wondered how that happened. Uh, we obtained a clip of Mr. Lemmon singing praise to, to John a year before he died. And we were able to use it in, uh, in, our, in our film. That was a private clip that not a lot of people saw. So he adored, they adored each other. Speaking of adoring each other, now we're kind of at the flip side of the coin. 
because I want to talk about another interview you conducted with the star of of John's uh, WW and the and the Dixie uh, Dance Kings, uh, who is Burt Reynolds. Now there seemed to definitely be a, a respect that Reynolds had for Avildsen, but they they didn't exactly get along like a house on fire, did they? Yeah, they didn't like each other. And and what's interesting about that? First of all, what a weird title. WW and the Dixie. Say that <laughs> it's it's a um, tongue twister, yeah. It it is. And it's another forgotten film. Um a lot of, no one knows about that movie. And it and uh but yeah, Burt so Burt Reynolds and John Allison did not like each other and that's on record. And here's something very interesting though. When I went to Burt Reynolds' house to interview him he was delighted to talk about John and his experience on that film. And every time he would quote unquote bash John, he would follow it up with, but I really respect him. He's a genius. Mm. And I realized, wait a second, hold on here. Burt Reynolds has a lot to say negatively about John, but he always follows it up with that. What, what's going on here? Cause usually if you just don't like someone, you know, you don't even have the, don't even, you don't say you respect them or they're a genius. So, I asked Mr. Reynolds, I said, look, if John were here right now, what would it be like? And Bert said, you know, no, no, think about it. And this is all um, not in the film, but it's, I have the outtakes. He says, I think it would be good. You know, actually, I would like to see him. I think it would be good. So when I showed John that clip, he melted because it's two guys that are, are headstrong, but mellowed out in their later years. And I, I, I never got to make that reunion happen, but it was good to see them kind of finally in their own way, bury the hatchet. Uh, but the yeah. reason why they didn't get along is John was a, you know, he's born in Illinois, but he was more of a New Yorker. And, and Burt Reynolds is famously, uh, a Floridian, a Southerner, and that cast was chock full of, of Southern actors. So Bert's beef was that John didn't really do his homework. For example, uh, the late great Mel Tillis uh, appeared in the film, and and um, he had a, a, a famous stuttering issue. Well, John didn't know that, so he thought that that was that Mel was kind of putting on. <laughs> and, you know, so that angered Bert, right? And and so you realize, like, okay, these are two totally opposite people that they don't really need to be working together. So Bert had his beef, and, of course, John had his beef with Bert. And what's interesting about that film is this is 1975. One year later, a little film called Rocky comes out, and a year after that, a little film called Smokey and the Bandit comes out. Mm. So uh, <laughs> those guys were – they were on a collision course with each other, but they went and both did extraordinary things afterwards. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was it was the stepping stone right before their biggest successes. Uh, in terms of Rocky, now I mean the the story of how that got that came to be is is legendary uh, of of Stallone sticking to his guns until he had he was able to star in the film and have more of a level of creative control over it when did john enter the fray and was he at all skeptical about stallone as a as a leading actor so john never was skeptical about sly playing the lead role of rocky because he thought hey all right a starving actor awesome he's gonna listen to me right <laughs> so he looked at it as, he's he's, oh. he's the antithesis of burt reynolds <laughs> Absolutely. He had someone that's not going to argue with him and, and someone that's going to listen and, and that was malleable. So he loved that idea. Um, but when how John came into it is uh, a friend of his, Gene Kirkwood, who was the executive producer of Rocky, sent John the script and said, read this. Uh, and John said, oh, man, I don't want to do a boxing picture. What are you talking about? He said, no, 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 John, read it. It's not a boxing picture. Huh? Oh, okay. John said five pages in, this 
this guy Rocky's talking to his turtles, Cup and Link. And he goes, I was charmed. By the way, that was John's favorite word, I believe, was charmed. I heard him say that numerous times. He was charmed by Rocky. He was charmed by Mr. Miyagi late, years later. He loved the word charmed. And I think that um, just Sly was, was malleable. And again, in my documentary, um, calls him his, said that John was his first teacher. And uh, I think that, you know, obviously those two came together and history was made. I, I still don't think, other than winning the Oscar, John gets enough credit uh, because Sylvester's story is so, I mean, it just overshadows the, the, the movie. I mean, you know, this guy that came from nothing and became an overnight success. So I think John, even to this day, still kind of sits in the shadows a bit when it comes to Rocky. Yeah, and it's even expressed in the earliest moments of your film where people just assume Stallone directed that movie, um, and they don't know it was it was you know put together with great love by by Avildsen. Uh, now, but even so, uh, the movie obviously changed Stallone's life. How did it change John's life, or did it? It it, it did. It validated John. Again, this is a guy that won Best Director. He, against all odds, I mean, he was up against Sidney Lumet and uh, uh, Alan J- Alan Pacula, and, and and it just, I mean, this, you know, how did this guy win? Who is this guy? And he won. So it put him on the map. He was able to do whatever he wanted after that. Of course, we'll get to that in a second because he made a very poor choice post Rocky, but. It changed his life. It, it validated him. I mean, he was 40 years old. 40 years old. It kick-started everything for him. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, without without Rocky, there'd be no, we'll get to later, the Karate Kid. So yeah, uh, it, changed, it changed John's life tremendously, and he became a working filmmaker for the next 20-plus years of his life. Did he know anything really about boxing prior to taking that movie? John knew nothing about boxing. He and Bill Conti, the great <laughs> composer, they had never seen a boxing match uh, in person. Obviously, on maybe on TV they would catch one. But they didn't know anything about boxing. But when John started looking at boxing films, he realized, this looks terrible. This looks fake. And... Um, I'd say the best boxing picture up until that point, or at least in recent years, was was Fat City that John Houston mm-hmm. directed. And I asked him, did you study that? And he's like, no, but it's a great movie. I said, well, what did you study? He said, I didn't really study. I just watched a lot of the old ones and saw how fake they looked. So we wanted to do something different. And uh, that's why, you know, you don't really think of a boxing movie before Rocky. That's true. And, you know, it's amazing to me that – the two greatest movies that involve boxing, Rocky and Raging Bull, were both directed by people that knew nothing about boxing. <laughs> that is yeah, it had the same producers, which was kind of interesting. Or uh, yeah. Arnold Winkler. Uh, just to go over, before we get to Karate Kid, I just uh, we did talk about Neighbors. I have to ask about... Uh, his collaboration with Brando, because we were talking about him earlier uh, in relation to Peter Boyle, but uh, did he get along with Brando? I mean, he, he's Brando feels like a brass ring, but this was 1980 when Brando was not up to much good. <laughs> How did they get along, do you know? John loved Marlon Brando. Loved, loved, loved him. John would always say how much of a sweetheart Brando was. Um, John despised George C. Scott and they did not get along, but, uh, some tidbits on, on the movie, the formula John, uh, said one time, cause he wanted to do the movie. He said, uh, you know, it was written by Steve Shagan, his buddy who also did save the tiger. He said, you know, it would be great if we had like, uh, I don't know, Marlon Brando and George C. Scott in this. Well, then they got him. He didn't know they were going to get him. He just, that was his first pick, and he got his first pick. He got who he wanted. And he said that uh, when he met with Marlon, that 
Marlon started kind of like taking over. And he was like, okay, I think the character's going to do this. And, you know, I don't like this line here. I don't think he would say that. And John's just sitting there being very quiet. And Marlon is just sitting there, yeah, I don't know. This looks stupid. And let's change this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. John politely and quietly spoke up and said, Mr. Brando, we're going to do it my way. And Marlon looks at him and he says, just check it. He was testing John, and John passed the test. He wanted to know, are you going to direct me or not? Are you going to let me overpower you? And uh, John passed that test. Wouldn't you ever give a second thought to American citizens? You're the reason their money's worthless. You're the reason old people are eating out of garbage cans and kids get killed in bullshit wars. You're not in the oil business. You're in the oil shortage business. You're an ivory tower hoodlum, a common street killer. At least a Christ, there's some way I can nail you. You're going to be nailing the American dream, Barney. Because it all started in the corner gas station. Remember, you used to take your bike down there and get free air? And Daddy said, uh, fill him up, Fred. Then you go down to Grandma's for Christmas dinner. Then when you got your first car, what'd you do? You took your girl for a ride. There was Fred. Smiling by the pump there. He never let you down because a gallon of gas never broke down. Well, it was oil that nourished the American dream. We're the great American tit, Barney. And without it, ain't no America. I watched that movie and um, now, and Brando is incredibly entertaining in it. You could tell Brando's having fun. And George C. Scott's kind of, you know, in classic George C. Scott fashion, kind of clenching his jaw. And <laughs> Man, right. I, and by I the way, tell, I, I love George you, C. Scott. I love him, too. I, I love him, too. Him. There, there's yeah. no more in, intense actor out there. But years ago, I spoke to Paul Schrader, and he has a wealth of great George C. Scott stories that uh, <laughs> talk about intimidation. Nice. It's, it's great. Right. Uh, okay. So I I distinctly remember riding my bike up to the movie theater to see both Karate Kid and Karate Kid Part Two. They were uh, like as they were for you. They were a major part of my childhood. Um, and I even I just I'm not from LA, but I did visit uh, a couple of months ago, and I made it a point to stop by a lot of the filming locations from the original Karate Kid the ones that are still mm-hmm. standing um, because I love the movie so much. Uh, his ability to much like John Hughes, his ability to kind of seep himself into teenage and the insecurities that come with it, 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 it. That, that was unique about him as well. I, I, I feel. Absolutely. Which doesn't even make sense because John was a silver spoon. Uh, he was a rich kid. He, he, it blows my mind. How, how did this guy who was, you know, silver spoon all his life, how did he know and understand these struggles, especially when he did the, the karate kid films, he was in his uh, late forties and early fifties. How do you know what it's like to be a teenager in the eighties? And I have two answers for that. One, he had teenage sons and two, Going back to his father, John's father was a self-made man, but he also fought for the common man, and he instilled a lot of that underdog into John. And I think that's how he was able to really show life as a teenager, just as John Hughes, like you said, was. And by the way, uh, John Avelson was a huge John Hughes fan. He loved planes, trains, and automobiles. But I want to, Jamie, real quick, before you, um, we move into that, I did want to give you a story on John's poor choice after Rocky. Um, I'd mentioned it earlier. Is it the slow dancing um, in the big city? It absolutely is slow dancing in the big city. You know your stuff. Now, here's a guy who has the key to the kingdom. He just won an Oscar for Rocky. He's the hottest director in town now. So, he originally was the original director for Saturday Night Fever. 
and he was fired. And that was very upsetting to John. As a matter of fact, I had a, a, a talk to him, a talk with him about it one day over lunch, and he got very emotional. Um, he was very, very sad that he was let go from that film. That hurt him. But he was offered Rocky too. He turned it down, as you'll find out in my documentary, and he did a stinker called Slow Dancing in the Big City. Why? Because he was in love with the writer, literally. And it just goes to show that it doesn't matter if you have an Oscar and the biggest movie ever under your belt. You have to choose wisely. And Slow Dancing in the Big City, I've seen it. I actually like it. There's some good parts to it, but it was a very, very poor, poor choice. And he should have, and, re- and regretted to the day he died, he should have done Rocky too. But mm. that was the story of John Avildsen. He didn't make the best choices all the time. And sometimes he, he in, in, in that case, made a bad choice. How often did he look back at his films? Did he review his films, or when they were done, he was done with them? No, John loved watching his films, and uh, I admire that about him. He uh, And he had almost every film of his, a copy of it somehow, whether that was VHS or digital transfer from film. And he would go back in, and he would talk about what he could have done differently or, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, he, he loved watching his films. That, I, I like that. I like that about John. He's not one of those uh, yeah. pretentious filmmakers that, oh, I haven't seen it since it was released 25 years ago. It's like, no, he he was proud of what he did, even his stinkers. Um, you know, so he, he watched No, it. that's good. That's good. Um, in, uh, with Karate Kid, I, I just want to touch upon the um, – casting of Pat Morita. It's amazing to me when you look at some of the casting choices throughout film history, they were always vetoed by the people in charge. I mean, they were usually met with, there is no way that we're going to hire this person. And they become an indelible part ultimately of, of film culture. And Pat Morita is a prime example of that, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, hey, if Jerry Weintraub uh, had his way at the time, <laughs> life would be different for all of us, and Pat Morita would not have been cast. But that's what I loved about Jerry, who was just a wonderful man, by the way, is that he listened to his director. He listened to Jerry Weintraub listened to people, and. John was very, 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 very adamant. He's like, Jerry, I found Miyagi. Who? Pat Morita. No, no way. And he's like, trust me, watch this tape. And to John's credit, he was very, he was a pioneer, in my opinion, of filming rehearsals, filming uh, behind the scenes, filming auditions. That way he could go back and, and watch them and study them. So he filmed Pat Morita's audition. He put it in or taped it rather, popped in the tape for Jerry, and Jerry was blown away. And he realized he was wrong. And I think the world is a lot sweeter now because Pat Morita was cast. Absolutely. And and Karate Kid 2 is one of those rare sequels that actually, even as a kid, I, I felt that it matched matched the first in that it it understood the, the strength of the Miyagi character and it it expanded the story to, to accommodate him. Um, and I, I, I just rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, and I just was blown away by it all over again. It, I'll, I'll tell you how much John loved Karate Kid 2. Because I, I feel like I'm giving you a lot of good information, but then some of the information you could probably – it's already out there. Let me give you some juice. Let me give you some good stuff that, <laughs> that isn't out there. This is how much John loved Karate Kid 2. One day I was, uh, you know, to do this documentary, we had private investors, but we also did Kickstarter just to get the word out. And when I was going over the Kickstarter campaign with John, 
it said something like, and he did Rocky and the Karate Kid, two of the most beloved films of all time, or whatever it says. And he goes, whoa, whoa, add and also the Karate Kid 2. And I go, what? Really? Which I love, and I agreed with him. But he's like, yes, I absolutely am so proud of Karate Kid 2. Add that in there. And I was like, okay. I just thought that was so, again, there's the word charming. He was so proud of that sequel. And he should be because it's a fantastic sequel. I don't care what anyone says. Some people are like, oh, well, like you said, Jamie, it's a great sequel. The direction that they took it in uh, was incredible. You don't see that a lot. Or you didn't see that a lot back then. Now it's a formula. I always laugh about this. Yeah. You have the 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 origin story, then they always go to Asia, you know, like in Hangover. Then they <laughs> then Hangover Two, they go to Asia, and then in Part Three, what do they do? They come right back to where it started, just like in Hangover Three. And uh, yeah, I think Hangover Trilogy kind of copied the Karate Kid trilogy, in my opinion. With Rocky Five, the original ending of that i did not know that rocky was supposed to die at the end of it did they actually film that so they didn't film it they were set to and during production that's when john got the call from the head of mgm saying rocky's not going to die and uh john said what are you talking about that's what i signed up for he's like no no no, he's not going to die so john didn't even get to film that um, that that ending, and was very upset by that. He he felt that it was more poetic that Rocky did die, but they had every intention of filming it, but did not get to it. Mm. And here you have uh, two gentlemen who the the landmark in their careers was one that they shared together with that first Rocky, and now they reconvene for the fifth Rocky. Did it? Did it feel like slipping on an, an old shoe? I mean, was it a, a comfortable experience for both of them? I I hear conflicting stories. I, I, Sly wanted John back. And uh, Talia Shire says that in my documentary, that Sly wanted John back. And so it was a good homecoming. However, there were a lot of problems, not only with the script, but things are different now. It's 14 years later. No one's hungry anymore. No one's starving. No one, um, it's been done and done and done and done and done. You know, we're at number five now. So although it was a, you know, a welcome home, John, something was still missing and it shows, but I think they were both well-intended Sly and John, of course. But mm-hmm. if you really see, if you get to see the the Rocky Five director's cut that's floating around out there on the internet, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's it's totally different really? than what the studio put out there. Absolutely, I saw it. It's a leak, and um, it really focuses more on 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 Tommy. It focuses more on on Rocky and his son. Um, you know, there's a scene that got cut that uh, where Rocky cries. He cries to his son, physical tears, and uh, that got cut. But there's also a scene where Tommy is sleeping at their house, you know, how he kind of like moved in with them. And he's looking up and he stares at, uh, if I remember correctly, I haven't seen it in a few years. He stares at the, the championship belt, almost as if he's dreaming about winning it himself. Brilliant, brilliant. And it didn't. It didn't get. It didn't make it in. Unfortunately. Huh. I'll have to look that up because I. I and again, I, I rewatched Rocky Five uh, a few weeks ago too, and I. I thought to myself, yeah, it's not. It's not the high point of the franchise, definitely, but I don't think it deserved the venom it got when it came out. I mean, I think at least there was there felt there felt a genuine attempt to go back to the roots of the thing, you know, what made it work to begin with. Absolutely. I mean, they, it was so well intended. And I think that Tommy Morrison sometimes gets a bad rep. He's fantastic as Tommy yeah. the machine gun. 
He's a 20-year-old heavyweight, never acted a day in his life. He's fantastic. He's he's unbelievably good in that film. And a lot of that is, is John Avelson. John really took the time and worked with him. And, and Tommy Morrison's widow, Trisha, told me, you know, she said, please tell John that, um, and I did, that Tommy really, really loved John and, 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 and respected him because he took the time to really work with him. And it shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Lean on Me because this was another uh, great success for John. Uh, it's a terrific movie led with a, by an absolutely indelible performance from Morgan Freeman. They did they work to get they worked together. What was it on the power power of one before that? Yeah, yeah, they worked together twice. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, what kind of anecdotes did he share with you about about putting together that film? With uh, with Lean on Me, John, we didn't talk too much about it. He loved it. I remember one time sitting at John's house, kind of like near where his Oscar would sit. Um, there was a, uh, I believe it was the NAACP image award, maybe that John won. Cause he was an executive producer on that film as well as director. And uh, he was very proud of that. I remember he showed that, that award to me. He was very, very proud of that award. And I asked him, well, wait, were you were to, you were an executive producer on it. Did you like, were you involved with the money or whatever? He said, no, I just demanded that I was the EP. I thought that was great. He said, no, I just demanded that I got executive producer credit, and I did. And uh, I, I love that. I love that about John. He would always say, uh, if you don't ask, how are you going to know? But um, he loved that film. He loved working with Morgan. He, see, he saw Morgan Freeman's film Street Smart that Morgan was nominated for an Oscar for, which is a amazing performance he got a copy of that and he said this is the guy and he cast morgan freeman based off of his off of his performance in street smart and uh he had a wonderful time filming that movie as a matter of fact to this day as some of those students uh he still kept in touch with uh it just occurred to me that he edited a lot of the movies that he directed which is unusual yes john he was a jack of all trades. And uh, I think that's one reason why I, I just felt close to him. Cause I am as well. I, I like to write, produce, direct, edit. So did John, a lot of his films he edited or co-edited or he worked on and didn't even take credit for. And um, he was a fascinating editor. He, he really understood it. He, he was a good cameraman. He shot a lot of sequences. As a matter of fact, in the karate kid, we were watching some scenes over uh, of my documentary at his house one day and up pops the shot of Daniel on the boat doing punches and blocks. Uh, and it's, he's silhouetted Ooh. on the lake. Ooh. You remember that shot? He oh goes, yeah. I shot that. I go, Did you? <laughs> he goes, yeah. yeah, I shot that. That's me. And, and it's just, you know, that, that would fascinate me. He was, he, he added, he added so much to his films. Okay, here's another one. He's at MGM. He's editing Rocky, the fight scene. He told me, he said, Derek, I knew we had gold when we added the, the Foley punch noises. When we added those in, mm-hmm. and they were so subtle. And they are subtle. If you really watch Rocky and listen to the punches, they're subtle. He goes, I knew we had magic. And I just thought, wow, this guy loves the craftsmanship and the, 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 the technical aspects of filmmaking. He loved it. 